You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Type your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of Yahweh, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of Yahweh. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spake to me saying, Thus says Yahweh, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. And he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached him, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus said the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. 
Joram said. Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how Yahweh made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares Yahweh, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground, in accordance with the word of Yahweh. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth-Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 805 of this podcast. Today is Friday, January 26th, 2024. And I just read for you 2 Kings chapter 9 in the Old Testament. We'll talk about what it is that we just read here in a moment, but also in this episode. We'll be talking quite a lot about the showdown that is shaping up on the border between Texas and Mexico, a showdown between Texas National Guard and Border Patrol at a federal level, directed by current President Joe Biden. There's a lot to talk about with regards to 
the back and forth, the news cycle from yesterday and from the past week. It's pretty spicy stuff, and it's hard telling what's going to happen as a result of this game of chicken. We're going to talk through what Douglas Murray's opinion about it all is, what Ben Shapiro's opinion is, some questions posed to John Kirby by Peter Ducey, where Republican governors across the U.S. are lining up what they're saying. And I'll talk a little bit about where I think this is going or where it could go. But before we get into all of that, that'll keep. Let's talk about 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu is anointed king of Israel. And this is a different (laughs) way of selecting, appointing, raising up, instituting an authority than I've ever heard discussed or given any mention to in the political theology of a lot of Americans as formed, as shaped, as influenced to the extent that it has been developed at all by American evangelicalism, the mainstream of American evangelical Christian leadership prefers to focus on David, for instance, being anointed while Saul is still king over Israel. And the emphasis is that David does not become king just because he's been anointed king. As a matter of fact, he is anointed and he is in Saul's service And he is hunted by Saul. Saul is insanely jealous of David because other people, in particular women of Israel, sing songs about how Saul has slain his thousands of their enemies and David his ten thousands. Saul tries to kill David and eliminate a rival, eliminate his successor, as if that would stop God's plan from being brought to fulfillment. David, for his part, has a couple of opportunities to remove Saul, but he doesn't. And his reason given every time he passes up an opportunity to eliminate Saul is that Saul is God's anointed and he's not going to stretch out his hand against God's anointed. Now about that, Saul is God's anointed, as in he was anointed by the prophet Samuel specifically to be king over Israel. When Israel demanded of Samuel a king, give us a king, make us a king, like the nations around us, Saul was God's choice as well. But that doesn't mean that every king, either of Israel or of Judah or of the nations, is the Lord's anointed. Some anoint themselves. Some appoint themselves, say, for instance, Hazael in Syria, sees that hears that his master, Ben-Hadad, is going to recover from an illness and he takes matters into his own hand and murders the king. He murders Ben-Hadad, who is king over Syria, and then he becomes king. Is he the Lord's anointed? There's no description of him as such that I caught. Maybe I missed it. If you caught it, let me know. But then also, in the case of various of the king's in Israel and Judah, more specifically, we have it being anticipated 
that so-and-so is going to become king. It's said that so-and-so is going to become king at various times. It's foreknown. It's foretold through the prophets at various junctures what's going to happen next. Say, for instance, when Solomon is king, the judgment on his idolatry, his being led astray by his many foreign wives to worship of their gods, facilitating at first and then participating ultimately in the worship of their gods. The judgment is that in his son's day, the kingdom will be taken away from the household of David, from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and given to his servant. And so it's known that Jeroboam is going to be king and that this is from God. But that doesn't mean that everybody who follows in the succession line of Jeroboam or Ahab is to expect that they will be king over Israel forever. Just like in the case of Saul. Saul is king, and you might suppose that not only is he the Lord's anointed, but then it stands to reason that his son would be the Lord's anointed as well, because that's just how it works, right? The oldest son of the previous king, when the previous king passes away, the oldest son inherits the throne, but not always, except when he doesn't, except when that's the end of the line for this family and they've disgraced themselves. They have made a mess of the country. They've governed it poorly. They've governed it faithlessly. They've rewarded wickedness instead of rewarding righteousness. They've punished righteousness instead of rewarding righteousness. Saul did that. His son actually was a really decent upstanding man from everything we see in the text. Jonathan was an excellent man. Ishbosheth not so much. And yet Ishbosheth does reign for a brief time, relatively brief time, after the death of Saul. While David reigns in Judah, Ishbosheth is king over Israel until he's assassinated by two captains of his after the death of Abner, because Abner was really the one who had anointed, had appointed and raised Ishbosheth to being the king. And sometimes God works through men like Abner, or sometimes God works through a prophet like Samuel, and sometimes God works through someone taking matters into their own hands, like in the case of Hazael, and sometimes God works through the people, as in it says that the people came together at this or that place, Gilgal, for instance, and made so-and-so king over Israel. But in this case, this is a special case. Elisha the prophet, successor to Elijah the Tishbite, calls one of the sons of the prophets, and I'm fascinated by this dynamic, by the way, this dynamic between the sons of the prophets and Elisha, where the sons of the prophets hang around. (laughs) They stay close to Elisha. It would seem they feel safe around Elisha, or they understand, they recognize that he is the prophet. That's how he's described in the text, the prophet, not just a prophet, and not like the sons of the prophets had fathers who were prophets. Elisha is the prophet. But it says in verse 1 that Elisha called one of the sons of the prophets and gave him this errand to run. Elisha doesn't go himself, and we don't even get the name of the son of the prophets, one of the sons of the prophets here. He's just one of the sons of the prophets. Presumably, 
one of the sons of the prophets who had been persecuted under Ahab and Jezebel, especially Jezebel, as they were purging the so-called cult of Yahwists from Israel and trying to institutionalize the cults of Baal and Asherah, the Phoenician deities, the Canaanite deities, the deities of Tyre or Tyr, if you will, where Jezebel had been the daughter of the king before being married to Ahab. We know that Jezebel, with plenty of help from Ahab, violently suppressed those who spoke for Yahweh, who spoke Yahweh's words after him, who were prophets. We know that Jezebel had the prophets of Yahweh murdered. And so these are the sons of the prophets. This is one of the sons of the prophets who's given this task to go to Ramoth Gilead. There, Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat being one who did well as king, and he followed more the example of David, Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, is there. And Jehu is to be asked to have a private chat. Can we go talk where it's quiet? When you get off just the two of you to have a discussion, anoint him with oil and tell him, thus says Yahweh. This is a very important distinction, and it does not always show up. Don't assume when it's not present that it's a given. Thus says Yahweh, I, who is I, Yahweh, as in Yahweh is anointing Jehu, king over Israel. I anoint you king over Israel. And then Elisha tells this son of the prophets, open the door and flee. Do not linger. Don't stick around. And so it is. So he does. He does exactly what Elisha tells him to do. It's not explained why. And actually, it's a bit of a head scratcher. As far as I'm concerned, why, given the response? When Jehu comes back to the commanders of the army in council, he plays it down. Oh, you know that guy. No, we don't actually. Oh, you know the sorts of things he says. No, we don't actually. Tell us. And so Jehu does. Jehu tells them that what he was told from the young man after the pouring of the oil on his head was that Yahweh, God of Israel, had anointed him king over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Their immediate response after hearing all of this is that they take their garments, robes, if you will, they put the robes under them on the bare steps. So it seems they were on a staircase of some sort and they blow the trumpet and they proclaim Jehu is king. How did this being a private conversation off to the side, not in front of everybody, help to make this the reaction? I don't know. And quite simply, I don't know. What was the significance of this young man, this son of the prophets, fleeing? Open the door and flee. Do not linger. Don't stick around. What was the significance of that to the reaction of the other commanders? Maybe it catches them so off guard, it takes them so much by surprise. Maybe that gives Jehu enough time to take seriously that this is not somebody pulling his leg. This is not someone trying to curry favor. In fact, this is a very dangerous thing to say. And all the more, if it's not a test, if it's not some flattery, if it's not somebody trying to wish cast a regime change in Israel, 
maybe Jehu, before he returns to the commanders, is able to compose himself a little bit, come to terms on some level with what just happened. (laughs) What was that? Really? And maybe that bears some consideration with how it is that the other commanders respond, that they immediately all together recognize him as king. They blow the trumpet and they proclaim Jehu is king. So God has anointed Jehu and now these commanders have confirmed and they recognize that God has anointed Jehu to be king. But then next, Jehu says, if this is your decision, that is, if it's your decision to ratify and to agree with God, if this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Jehu gets in his chariot, goes to Jezreel, for that's where Joram is. That's where he is recovering from an illness after an injury. Ahaziah, king of Judah, very recently having been made king of Judah, or so it seems. I believe that's what is being indicated. Ahaziah is there to visit. Here comes Jehu with his retinue. And they see Jehu coming furiously, or the watchman sees Jehu coming furiously, driving like a crazy person, driving pell-mell, very aggressively, with the utmost determination. They send messengers out to meet him when he's still a ways off. Do you come in peace? Messengers are not sent back, which is a bit ominous, right? If the answer is yes, I come in peace, you probably send the messengers back to report. Yeah, he comes in peace. Instead, Jehu says, get behind me, as in, you work for me now. So he's already beginning to take this kingship business seriously as far as directing those who were just five minutes ago taking orders from Joram. Joram, after the second messenger doesn't come back, says, make ready. They make ready his chariot. He's not in the best of shape, but he's going to go out to meet Jehu personally. He goes out along with Ahaziah, king of Judah, each in their chariots. This is a very dramatic scene, something like a showdown. Chariots were a big deal back then. They were the tank of the ancient world. And so it's almost like these two guys jump in their tanks. They're going to go out and meet Jehu in his tank with his retinue, probably right there with him. It's not just Jehu because otherwise it wouldn't make sense that Jehu gives instructions for Ahaziah to be shot as well as Ahaziah is trying to flee. But here's the question. Here's the really dramatic culmination of this back and forth, back and forth, and so much drama in 1 Kings and in 2 Kings surrounding Ahab, the house of Omri before him, but Ahab and Jezebel and their relationship to the gods of the nations and Yahweh God of Israel and the prophets of Yahweh and the people of Israel. Joram goes out to meet Jehu and he asks, is it peace, Jehu? Jehu answers, what peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother, Jezebel, are so many. Now remember, Ahab has died. Ahab is no longer in the picture. Jezebel, at this juncture, she is kind of the queen regent. She still would have quite a lot of power, a lot of sway in Israel, even though she wasn't king, even though Joram was king, 
she still wields quite a lot of power. And so it's not just your mom's alive, it's your mom is still up to her wicked tricks. Jehu describes Jezebel's antics as whorings and sorceries. She is a woman who acts as though she worships Baal and Asherah. She would also be traditionally a high priestess in the cult of Baal as the queen, as the daughter of the king of Tyre or Tyr. I believe it's Tyre, but no matter. Say it fast and nobody will know. Jezebel is a bad, bad influence on Israel. And that's an understatement. What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! Jehu personally draws his bow with his full strength and shoots Joram between the shoulders, shoots him right through the heart so that he dies pretty much right away, pretty much immediately. His body is thrown onto the property of Naboth, who was murdered by Ahab and Jezebel under false pretenses. It was a setup. It was political corruption. It was religious corruption. They used some pretext of devotion to God, along with bribes, along with bullying of local city council officials who were told to find worthless men who will testify against Naboth because Naboth wouldn't sell his vineyard that was right next to Ahab's property. When Ahab wanted to buy it, he was very upset that he was told no. Nobody tells him no. Who does this guy think he is? Jezebel said, I'll get you that vineyard. And she hatched this plot. And this is the sort of thing that she did, corrupting Israel, corrupting the government of Israel. And so where is Joram's body going to be tossed? On the property of Naboth. And that is to fulfill the word of Yahweh. Ahaziah, seeing all this, he is going to flee as well. He's going to run for it or ride his chariot out of there. Jehu directs his retinue to shoot him too. And so Ahaziah and Joram are both killed by Jehu. And that means that both Israel and Judah are without a king or they have their respective kings killed in the same day. He flees. His injury is not so bad as Joram's was that he would die immediately, shot through the heart, but he lingers long enough to get to Megiddo and die there at the fortress there. He gets a right proper burial in his own tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, began to reign over Judah, but this is the end of his reign. The very last section here has to do with the end of Jezebel. Jehu came to Jezreel. Jezebel gets word. She hears the news and she puts on her makeup. She puts on her jewelry. She dresses the part of the queen to see what? To see if she can have one last defiant show of her contempt for Yahweh and for the people of Israel. Her question is not a peacemaking question. She asks, is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? When I do the cross-reference on this, Zimri, you Zimri, she calls him. It literally means my music. The son of Salu, a Simeonite chieftain slain by Phineas, 
with Midianitish, Princess Cosby, fifth king of the northern kingdom, murderer of the king Ella, who reigned for seven days before he killed himself by setting the palace on fire and was replaced by the general of the army, Omri. That's how Omri started out as king in Israel, remember? One of the five sons of Zerah and grandson of Judah, son of Jehoiada, a descendant of Saul. Why does she call him Zimri? Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? I don't know. In any event, he lifts up his face to the window, and rather than answering her, he asks, who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and that is to say that there were two or three eunuchs, and that is to say that Jezebel or Ahab presumably had made these men eunuchs so that they could attend to the queen without any funny business, but then were they willingly subjected to castration or against their will? They've probably not been the best treated. Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. And so they did. This must have been fairly high up that she fell and her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And they trample on her. The horses are spooked, it would seem, by her falling in their midst. They trample on her. Jehu goes in, eats, drinks. After he has had a meal, he says, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. That's a reference even to her being Phoenician, not Israelite. It was alliance making. It was geopolitics being prioritized over faithfulness to God that had her marrying Ahab in the first place. But she is a king's daughter. She should be buried. But it says, verse 35, when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told Jehu, he said, this is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say this is Jezebel. This is a cautionary tale. And also this prevents anybody who thought, boy, times were good when Jezebel was holding sway. She really was the hero of that story. It was those Yahwists. It was those followers of Yahweh, those fanatics, those maniacs, those traitors, backwards, whatever, blah, blah, blah. If they exist today, and there are a lot of feminists who actually think Jezebel was just misunderstood and she got a bad deal. She actually was the hero, just like Satanists will say Lucifer was actually the hero of the conflict with the angels of Yahweh, with Yahweh. If we have such people today who sympathize with Jezebel and think she was actually in the right, you know that closer to when she actually lived, there would have been people. There would have been people who thought, that's really too bad. And if they had a place where she was buried, that they could go and honor her memory and venerate her memory and her legacy, you would have just had the whole thing start back up again. And so it seems as though the cautionary tale piece is part of God's purpose for her being eaten by the dogs. It's punishment for how much she exalted herself, not just over the people of God, but over God himself to make war against God by making war against his people, his prophets, any way you slice it. That's the end of her story. That's the end of Jezebel. And now 
Jehu is king. And all of this by the word of Yahweh. Not somebody's interpretation of the word of Yahweh. Not somebody just making it up, putting words in God's mouth. No, this is what God instructed to happen. That's a hard pill for us to swallow. And that's because a lot of us are very soft and very naive. And we have been given milk like so many infants when, meanwhile, texts just like this would inform our political theology just as much as the story of David and Goliath or Jonah and the whale, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Texts like this should inform our political theology just as much as God having created in six days and resting on the seventh. We should see about that. We should see to it then. But that's all for Second Kings chapter 9. For this episode, at least... In our next episode, we'll get into 2 Kings chapter 10, of course, naturally. Now let's turn to this question of what's going on at the border of Texas and Mexico with regards to Border Patrol and the Texas National Guard. Joe Biden, president of the United States, on the one hand, and Greg Abbott, governor of the state of Texas, on the other hand. I'm going to play for you to start off our consideration of this, a clip from a bit of reporting from Chris Enlow over at The Blaze, highlighting a exchange between Peter Ducey from Fox News and John Kirby with the Biden administration, asking some questions back and forth about, now what? What's going to happen next with this disagreement, this conflict? I'll play for you. Cut one here before we comment on it. Here it is. Take a listen. Uh, Why are you guys making it easier for people to enter the country illegally? I believe we are. Why do you think we are? Well, you guys sued to cut razor wire that was put in place by Texas officials. So that the Border Patrol could actually do their jobs, but keep going. Well, you won in court, so now what? The Border Patrol Union president is saying the Supreme Court's decision is going to undoubtedly encourage more illegal immigration. Do you guys know better than the Border Patrol Union? The Border Patrol needed access, and that's why we sued to get rid of that uh, razor wire so that they could do their jobs. And you know what would also help them do their jobs, Peter? More Border Patrol agents. There's an idea. And if you go back to the supplementary request that we put in, there's money in there for some 1,300 additional Border Patrol agents. We want to help them do their jobs. We want to give them more resources. And the answer we kept get, keep, keep getting back from House Republicans is no, no, no. Does razor wire work? Does razor wire work for what? Does it work for the Border Patrol to allow them to have the access they need to be able to uh, to better process people that are uh, trying to get across the border? I don't think so, and that's why we asked for it to be removed. And the audio clips out right there, but I'm pretty sure he was going to say removed. That's why we asked for it to be removed. Now, it's interesting. It's an interesting back and forth, an interesting exchange. John Kirby is being intentionally vague as to what does it work? What do you mean? It, 
does it work for allowing Border Patrol to do their job? Ah, uh, but wait a second. But wait a second. What is the job that Border Patrol is being asked to do? Is Border Patrol being asked to stop people from illegally entering the country without permission? Is that what they're being asked to do? In that case, if that's what their job is, then the razor wire actually helps them to do their job. <laughs> oh, but wait, but wait. John Kirby says Border Patrol's job is to process people who are trying to come into the country. And we know from other reporting that what that looks like is they take down their information and they release them into the country. So we're keeping track of who's coming in, but then we're letting them come in. What's the purpose of patrolling the border? Is the purpose of patrolling the border to actually secure the border? That's really what this comes down to. That's really the conflict between Texas and the Biden administration right now. On the one hand, patrolling the border is to the end of keeping people from illegally crossing into this country, period. And oh, by the way, we wouldn't have so many people coming through Mexico, coming through Central America, up from South America, and coming from all over the world. You have to know that. You have to understand it's not just Latin Americans. It's people from Africa. It's people from the Middle East. It's people from Asia. It's people from everywhere, all over the world, who are pouring across the border. They're coming up through Mexico because when they get across the border, the Biden administration has signaled to the world that they'll be processed and then they'll be released into our country. They might be given a court date, sure, with an immigration judge, but then what if they just don't come to that appointment? And the more and more there are, the less and less reasonable it is to suppose that they're going to be found, they're going to be tracked down. That will also get turned into, has been turned into some racist thing. Say, for instance, in November, if Trump is elected to be president again for another four years, and he strongly favors identifying who has come into the country illegally and deporting them, sending them back to the countries that they came here from and not letting them come back in again. That will be, has been, that's why I know it will be again, portrayed as racist and somehow un-American. But then that is to say too, that the Biden job description for border patrol agents is catch and release. Apprehend, identify, document, and let them carry on. <laughs> Texas, meanwhile, the state of Texas, governed by Greg Abbott, they have a very, very different view of the purpose of patrolling the border. And razor wire helps to accomplish their purpose, which is we don't let you into our country. Rather than us catching you, documenting you, letting you into the country and we'll set up a court date with an immigration judge or we'll call you, right? We'll call you and let you know when we're ready for you to appear before an immigration judge. They're saying, no, you can't come in. Stay out. You do not have permission. If you want permission, file the appropriate paperwork at the border crossing. File the appropriate paperwork with our government and we will consider it. But you can't just come in without permission. That's an invasion. As alluded to by Peter Ducey, the Supreme Court weighed in on this and said, surprisingly, shockingly, in a 5-4 decision, 
which saw John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett, both appointed by Republican presidents, first George W. Bush and then later Donald Trump, respectively, siding with the liberal justices to say, yes, actually, the Biden administration, Border Patrol can remove the razor wire. But the whole claim is predicated on that's actually going to help Border Patrol do their job. But wait, what is Border Patrol's job here? And what is the governor of Texas supposed to do? What's his job? What's his duty? Does he not have a job? Does he not have a duty with regards to the border of his state as pertains to illegal immigration? Does he have no authority? Does he have no jurisdiction? If he does have authority and jurisdiction here, is his any less weighty? Is it more weighty? Is it about the same as Biden's jurisdiction? That's the conflict. That's the setup. But to Peter Ducey's point, you're making it easier for people to enter the country illegally. That's really what this boils down to for Republicans. You can say, well, we asked for money to hire 1,300 more Border Patrol agents, but that's misleading. When the job description you're giving to Border Patrol agents, the more and more of them you have is going to be just to process more and more illegal immigrants and to catch and release, let them into the country. Make this sound like and seem like the fault of the Republicans, all you like, but it's the Republicans who are saying absolutely not enough, no mas, no more. And the question I want to examine in this episode is, are Republicans in the right, do they have the right of it or are they being unruly? Are they being disruptive and insubordinate? Is it their job to just do whatever Joe Biden says to do here? Even the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision here. Is it the job of the Texas governor, for instance, to just do whatever is being indicated with regards to the razor wire specifically? That's the question we're going to be considering. And we're going to see what it is that other Republican governors have had to say across the U.S. as they weigh in on this. We're also going to take a look at opinions from Douglas Murray and Ben Shapiro. But ultimately, Whatever the Supreme Court's position, whatever Joe Biden's position, whatever conservative commentators or Republican governor's position may be, I want to ask the question, is it right to tell Joe Biden no and to stand your ground in a case like this? If you're the governor of the state of Texas, are you in the right to plant your feet and say, I'm not moving? Or I guess plant your wheels as the case may be, because Greg Abbott is in a wheelchair. But you get my point. Is it right to say, metaphorically, figuratively speaking, here I stand and I'm not moving? Douglas Murray says, yes, it is right. Writing for the New York Post, an opinion piece published just yesterday, yesterday afternoon, Biden's border dereliction forced Governor Abbott's hand and caused a national crisis. Who do you think said this when asked about the southern border and the issue of sanctuary cities? Quote, you have to have a federal government that can enforce laws. This administration has been fundamentally derelict in not funding any of the requirements that are needed even to enforce the existing laws. Would he allow cities to ignore federal law? No. It may seem surprising, but that was Joe Biden way back in 2007 during the George W. Bush administration. In those days, the then-senator and candidate for the Democrat 
nomination for president, was talking tough on sanctuary cities. He warned that in these cities, stores ended up closing and the cities themselves became dumpsters. So how can the same man, now in the position of president himself, have brought America to the state we are now in? Just how bad the situation is was made clear this week with Texas Governor Greg Abbott's declaration. Abbott's Wednesday statement should be seen not as a fly-by-night news story, but as a detonation under the body politic of America. That he felt the need to do it tells us everything about the situation. Quote, the federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. Abbott's declaration began, quote, the executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws on the books right now. President Biden has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is that he has smashed records for illegal immigration. The governor's statement followed the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision to allow federal officials to remove razor wire at the border installed by the state of Texas. In other words, the Border Patrol will be actively removing protections put up by the state, not just to protect the state, but to protect the whole country, including sanctuary cities like this one. The court's ruling was obviously wildly provoking to the governor, and I can't think of a more serious threat to the political order in this country than what Biden, the Supreme Court, and Abbott have now brought to pass. Because Abbott has reached for the most serious tool of any governor's arsenal, these are no mere legal games anymore. What the governor is declaring is that Texas is going to take matters into its own hands. Over 6 million people have flooded over the border in the past three years, which, as Abbott has pointed out, is more than the population of 33 states in this country. Yet instead of helping Texas to secure the border, the federal government has actually gone after Texas for doing so. It has dragged the state to court for daring to try to secure the border. And since the Biden administration has told the border agencies to ignore laws mandating that they detain illegal arrivals, the effect has been, as Abbott says, a mass parole into the United States. It is these people who end up on the streets of this city and many other cities from Chicago to San Francisco. It is these people who end up filling our city's hotels and shelters. It is these people who at worst commit crimes and at best undercut New York City workers by entering the black economy and making a mockery of the Democrats' own minimum wage laws for workers in the city. So what Abbott has done may seem desperate, but it is also necessary. He has declared what is happening an invasion, and he has triggered the articles that allow the rights of a state to self-defense and invoked Texas' constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. What is more, he has said that from here on, the Texas National Guard, Texas Department of Public Safety, and other Texas personnel will be acting on this authority and on state law, not federal law, to protect the state of Texas. This is a very serious breakdown in the political system in this country. To have a state governor say that federal law has broken down and that as a result, his state is going to take matters into its own hands is extraordinary except that there is a precedent. All those cities and states that also broke away from federal law in recent decades when they declared themselves sanctuary states and cities. I suspect that Abbott will get a fair amount of pushback on his statement in the courts and in the courts of elite opinion. 
But where were these critics when leftist politicians went around grandstanding about the necessity of welcoming the world's poor and dispossessed? Where was the condemnation when states and cities decided to unilaterally encourage further illegal immigration into this country because they wanted to look kindly and compassionate? The answer is, it was there, such as in the statements of Joe Biden, the candidate in 2007. And then nothing happened. People might have condemned sanctuary state announcements, but little to nothing was done about them. And it never is, because in the realm of illegal immigration, there is never any price to pay for encouraging it. The true political pressure is only put on people like Abbott, who are trying to enforce the laws of the land. Of course, when they run for election, candidates such as Biden will occasionally talk a tough game, but they act the other way. It is as though the water on illegal migration only flows one way. There is no other area in public life where the decisions that need to be made are so tough in the short term, and no policy decision that is easier to put off for the long term. Yet the putting off is exactly what makes it worse. There's an ominous note around Abbott's declaration, but it is also a necessary one, and I hope amid all the criticism, people will remember it wasn't Abbott who brought America to this point. It was Biden and all the other politicians who said one thing only to do another. And that is well said. That is well said by Douglas Murray, author of The Madness of Crowds and The Strange Death of Europe. He would know a thing or two about immigration policies run amok destabilizing countries. Say, for instance, his country, the UK. He studied and written pretty extensively about these sorts of issues regarding Europe, and actually in his book, The Strange Death of Europe, he said the United States was only maybe a couple of decades behind Europe. With how bad things have gotten in Europe, the U.S. will get there in short order because the U.S. is taking its cues from European elites, or our elites anyways, are taking their cues from European elites. And unfortunately, that is very much on display at the WEF in Davos, Switzerland, for instance. They get together and discuss how it looks like they should get ready for round two of Trump being president of the United States. That's probably what's going to happen. And they're very concerned about it. But then that is to say that they're very concerned about Americans reasserting our right to be America. To be the United States of America in a distinct way, our right to exercise the rights of a sovereign people. We have the right to exercise our rights to protect our country, to protect our borders. That they would deny that puts them on the wrong side of history. It's harebrained and egotistical. And they should be told to mind their own business. But now our business is to figure out what to do about a showdown shaping up between the Texas governor and the president of the United States, between the federal government and the government of the state of Texas. Over at the Epoch Times, Jack Phillips has a bit of reporting from also yesterday. Texas governor vows to add more razor wire after Supreme Court order. 
Quote, we are adding more razor wire as we speak right now to make sure we are doing even more to secure the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said in an interview Thursday with Bloomberg TV. Lieutenant Chris Olivares, a spokesperson for the Texas Department of Public Safety, wrote that the state's Operation Lone Star will keep, quote, its current posture, end quote, of setting up razor wire and other barriers to block illegal immigration into the state. Quote, the logical concern should be why the federal government continues to hinder Texas' ability to protect its border, all the while allowing for the exploitation, dangerous and inhumane methods of permitting illegal immigrants, including children, to illegally cross a dangerous river where many have lost their lives, end quote. Earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration when it granted an emergency appeal to allow federal agents to cut the razor wire. The 5-4 order allows federal agents to only cut the razor wire, and it does not prohibit Texas from setting up the wire, some legal analysts have noted. The Supreme Court's order did not provide an explanation. Those who voted in favor included Chief Justice John Roberts, as well as Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Sonia Sotomayor, Katanji Brown-Jackson, and Elena Kagan. Those who voted against included Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. That ruling set aside a lower court decision that blocked federal officials from cutting the wire installed along the shore of the Rio Grande inside Texas. The order did not touch on a lawsuit filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton in October to block agents from destroying or seizing the razor wire barriers. As Mr. Abbott vowed to set up more razor wire, a spokesperson for the White House described it as a mere political stunt, which will, quote, make it harder and more dangerous for frontline personnel to do their jobs, end quote, according to a statement. Quote, ultimately, we need more adequate resources and policy changes to address our broken immigration system, end quote. In a separate statement, Mr. Abbott accused the Biden administration of breaking its compact with Texas and other states. Because according to him, the federal government currently is not enforcing, quote, federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws, on the books right now, end quote. Regarding the U.S.-Mexico border situation, the Biden administration, he added, quote, has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them, end quote. Whether you're sympathetic to Greg Abbott or you're sympathetic to the Biden administration or you check out of all of this probably has quite a lot to do with whether you're predisposed to favor the Democrats and their view of the good life, or you're predisposed to favor the Republicans, admittedly. But I don't think that that's proof that we can't come to an understanding of what is correct here. I really don't. Those who say, ah, it's just Republicans and Democrats, once again, need to think about these things more objectively. Before we continue on with Ben Shapiro's opinion on this, since we got Douglas Murray's We'll get Ben Shapiro's. Consider again the reading at the top of this episode, 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu is anointed by God to be king over Israel instead of Joram. Jehu is a commander, which is a lower level of authority, but it is some authority that he has. And he's gathered with other commanders because he's an equal to them, except that God raises up Jehu. God appoints Jehu to become king over Israel. And that's not to say anybody's changing job titles here. 
in this situation. But it is to say there's already a king, and that doesn't mean that everything that the king is doing and not doing is beyond reproach and quite right and quite acceptable and quite good. As a matter of fact, it's alluded to that Jehu has not been in agreement with the actions of Joram and his dynasty when he's asked, is it peace? When Joram comes out in the chariot to meet Jehu, he asks, is it peace? And what Jehu says is, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? In other words, they have done what is evil. They have promoted what is evil. If you were transposed back to this time in Israel, and you were an Israelite, would you say, oh, it's just the Yahwists and the Baalists at it again? No. No, you wouldn't. I hope you wouldn't anyways. But you might be tempted to say, Joram is king. Jezebel, she's been in a position of power and authority and influence over Israel for some time now. Let's just leave it the way that it is. If it's wrong, well, then it's her fault. But let's not upset the situation any more than it already is. It's already a bad situation. You're just making it worse if you confront them about it. Well, maybe apart from the intervention of God himself, that's valid. But then 2 Kings chapter 9 proves that sometimes God does intervene. And sometimes a commander actually is more in the right, and God is raising up a commander where a king has not just failed to do his duty, he's done what is evil. And he is in a succession. He's on the latest in a long line of those who have done what is evil. They've actually promoted lawlessness when they were supposed to execute justice. Second Kings 9 proves that sometimes God actually causes these things to happen and puts these things in motion. It would be an absurd reading of Second Kings chapter 9 to see Jehu as out of order for what he does. And we're not even, in the case of the Texas dispute, we're not even rising to the level of, at least not yet anyway, armed conflict between Border Patrol agents and Texas National Guard. No physical altercations have occurred that I know of. Maybe that'll change as each are trying to enforce the orders of their superiors. But even if it rises to that level, that's not proof that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is in the wrong or that he's out of line. The story of Ahab and Jezebel, now Joram in the context of this chapter that we read, the story and the legacy of these kings and, in the case of Jezebel, a queen over Israel, is that they were supposed to do justice. And instead, they murdered those who were on the side of God. They oppressed and drove into hiding and threatened and defrauded and set up and destroyed those who were well within their rights. For crying out loud, Joram's body is thrown on Naboth's property because it was Naboth's property. He was well within his rights to say, I'm not inclined to sell the inheritance passed down to me from my fathers to you for any price. And they exercised a kind of lawfare against him to destroy him so that his property would suddenly be available. False charges and false witnesses, worthless men, and corrupt 
city council members, elders of the city, having received letters from Jezebel, you're going to convict him. You will find him guilty. That was an evil, evil thing. And they richly deserved being removed from the position of authority. And when God himself had Jehu anointed as king over Israel, God himself was demonstrating that sometimes he does that sort of a thing, or he orchestrates and ordains for that sort of a thing to happen. But let's get Ben Shapiro's opinion on this. Over at the Daily Wire, where else? Ben Shapiro published a piece, an opinion piece, his opinion, but this is just his thinking, which is worth something. He's a good mind. Greg Abbott fights Biden, enforces the border. He's right, and it's not illegal. On Wednesday, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas issued a letter announcing that the state of Texas was going to start enforcing the border. They've been doing this for a while, yet the federal government has objected to the fencing they put in the middle of the Rio Grande barriers. So Abbott issued a historic letter in the face of a constitutional crisis that has been created entirely by Joe Biden and his evil activities on the border. Note the word here, evil. (laughs) Evil. Thank you, Ben Shapiro, for using the word evil. It is evil, he writes, not to enforce the border of your country, to purposefully leave the border wide open, which is what Biden has done. I've been down to the border. It is indeed wide open. And that facilitates the incentivization of drug cartels to pour millions of people into the United States and move tons of fentanyl across the southern border, the cause of over 100,000 American deaths a year. This is Biden abandoning his constitutional duties and abdicating the presidency of the United States. It is evil for the president of the United States to do such. The equivalent would be if a mayor of a large city simply announced they are not going to police crime anymore. The fundamental duty of the federal government is to protect the people and the borders of the United States of America. It is a federally mandated duty for the government of the United States to do that. It is a federal issue, not a state issue. Biden has not only signally failed, but he has also done the opposite of good. He has facilitated all of this with terrible border policy. It is wrong. It should be against the law. The federal government has one job and one job only in the end, to protect you, to protect your rights. Laws preventing illegal immigration have been in place for decades in the United States. It is up to the president of the United States to enforce those laws. Again, it is worth noting that leaving the border wide open is not just incentivizing Mexican drug cartels to move millions of people across the southern border, but it is also incentivizing them to move tons of fentanyl across the southern border, which is effectively killing 100,000 Americans a year. Biden has turned Border Patrol into a ferry service for illegal immigration. Members of Border Patrol will openly say that is what they are now. Their job used to be to track down people who were illegally crossing the border so they could be detained and then deported. Now their job is to act as a facilitation service for illegal entry into the country. The first part of Greg Abbott's letter reads, The federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws, on the books right now. President Biden has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is that he has smashed records for illegal immigration. Despite having been put on notice in a series of letters, one of which I delivered to him by hand, President Biden has ignored Texas's demand that he perform his constitutional duties. President Biden has violated his oath to faithfully execute 
immigration laws enacted by Congress. Instead of prosecuting immigrants for the federal crime of illegal entry, President Biden has sent his lawyers into federal courts to sue Texas for taking action to secure the border. President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes that mandate the detention of illegal immigrants. The effect is to illegally allow their en masse parole into the United States. By wasting taxpayer dollars to tear open Texas border security infrastructure, President Biden has enticed illegal immigrants away from the 28 legal entry ports along this state's southern border bridges where nobody drowns and into the dangerous waters of the Rio Grande. That is true, Ben Shapiro writes. Drug cartels don't actually want illegal immigrants processed at these stations. Rather, they want to flood certain border points so as to draw the Border Patrol to those areas where it is their duty to care for the illegal immigrants entering the country and claiming asylum. If you take all the people spaced along the border, with very few Border Patrol agents trying to maintain eyes on miles of the border, and then you suddenly centralize the agents at one point where the illegal immigrants are rushing across, that leaves the rest of the border wide open. And that's where you get drug smugglers being shifted across by the drug cartels. Abbott continues, quote, This illegal refusal to protect the states has inflicted unprecedented harm on the people all across the United States. James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the other visionaries who wrote the U.S. Constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels smuggling millions of illegals across the border. That is why the framers included both Article 4, subsection 4, which promises that the federal government, quote, shall protect each state against invasion, end quote. And Article 1, subsection 10, clause 3, which acknowledges the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders, end quote. The failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article 4, subsection 4, has triggered Article 1, subsection 10, clause 3, which reserves this state the right of self-defense. For these reasons, I have already declared an invasion under Article 1, subsection 10, clause 3, to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. Abbott, Ben Shapiro continues, has done nothing to violate the law thus far, nothing, he has not violated federal law. People are accusing him of having done so because he had Texas state troopers put out racer wire in state parks. Those people don't know what they're talking about. The Supreme Court ruled recently that the federal government has the capacity to withdraw the razor wire, but they said nothing about whether the state of Texas is allowed to put up the razor wire. The Supreme Court did not rule that it was illegal for the state of Texas to, for example, put barriers in the Rio Grande. They just ruled that the federal government is allowed to remove those barriers. Anyone who says Texas is doing something illegal is incorrect. Here's the deeper issue. Whether the state of Texas can unilaterally enforce immigration law, even if the federal government wants them not to. In 2010, the state of Arizona passed a law called SB 1070. The law contained four provisions. The first provision was that it created a state-level crime for being unlawfully present in the United States. You would be prosecuted by the federal government and deported. It would be a state law crime. Second, it created a state law crime for working or seeking to work when you weren't authorized to do so. It's a federal crime for people to use a false social security number, for example, to work illegally in the United States. This created a comparative state law crime based on that. Third, it required state and local officers to verify the citizenship 
or alien status of anyone who was lawfully arrested or detained, an anti-sanctuary city policy. If you were a cop and you pulled somebody over, you would have to check whether they were legally here or not. And fourth, the law authorized warrantless arrests of aliens believed to be removable from the United States. So you could just arrest people, and then presumably you would turn them over to the federal government. The question on the table was whether federal preemption prevented those laws from taking effect. When a state law comes into conflict with the federal law, the state law loses. The federal law, federal preemption, is actually a little broader in that it says a federal law takes up a certain portion of the law. If it occupies that portion of the law, the state laws cannot come into conflict with it. So the court in the Arizona case found items 1, 2, and 4 were in violation of the Constitution. Justice Scalia dissented, saying today's opinion approving virtually all of the Ninth Circuit's injunction against enforcement of the four challenged provisions of Arizona's law deprives states of what most would consider the defining characteristic of sovereignty, the power to exclude from the sovereign's territory people who have no right to be there. The naturalization power was given to Congress not to abrogate states' power to exclude those they did not want, but to vindicate it. He was referring to the original reason immigration law was given to the federal government. Everybody at the beginning of the republic was very much afraid of what has happened in the EU, where one country has open immigration policies, another says they don't want all these immigrants coming into their country, but the EU says they must accept them. So the federal government took control of this to make homogenous immigration law around the United States, where there would be freedom of travel and freedom of residency. But in order for that bargain to be upheld, the federal government actually does have to police the border. That's particularly true when laws on the books say the border must be policed. It would be one thing if the federal government had passed laws saying we basically have open immigration at this time, because presumably those federal laws would have been part of a constitution that was signed onto by the states. But it is another thing for the federal government to have laws on the books requiring policing the border and removing illegal immigrants, but the executive branch says, no, we're not going to do it because now you've abrogated the compact. Scalia said in that case, in the dissent, the reason the entire issue was federalized was to prevent open migration to one state from affecting all the states. That's basically what Greg Abbott is arguing in this letter, and he's right. That's Ben Shapiro's take, and it's hard to argue that this is not the right take. In fact, this is the right take. It's evil what Joe Biden is doing and directing to have done. It is a violation of his oath of office. Greg Abbott is fulfilling his oath of office. It's as right for Greg Abbott to be doing what it is that he is doing as it is evil for Joe Biden to be doing what he is doing. We're talking about faithfulness and treachery. It's a betrayal of the American people. It's a betrayal of the rule of law in this country to say, we're just going to facilitate. We're just going to bus these illegal immigrants. We're going to let them in. We'll process them. We'll take their information and we'll send them off into the U.S. That's the opposite of policing the border. And that's what Joe Biden is doing. And that's what Greg Abbott is saying is over and done with on his watch. I agree with Ben Shapiro, not because he's Ben Shapiro, but because he's right. <laughs> he's right that Greg Abbott is right. Meanwhile, another bit of reporting over at the Daily Wire, which you should definitely subscribe to if you don't already. Ryan Zavedra just yesterday highlights 25 Republican governors banding together to support Texas in its fight to secure the border. 
25 Republican governors from across the country released a joint statement Thursday afternoon expressing support for the state of Texas as it fights to secure its border with Mexico. The statement comes as the Biden administration is fighting to stop Texas from securing its borders and preventing millions of illegal aliens from flooding into the state. Quote, President Biden and his administration have left Americans and our country completely vulnerable to unprecedented illegal immigration pouring across the southern border. Quote, instead of upholding the rule of law and securing the border, the Biden administration has attacked and sued Texas for stepping up to protect American citizens from historic levels of illegal immigrants, deadly drugs like fentanyl, and terrorists entering our country. Quote, we stand in solidarity with our fellow governor, Greg Abbott, and the state of Texas in utilizing every tool and strategy, including razor wire fences, to secure the border. Quote, we do it in part because the Biden administration is refusing to enforce immigration laws already on the books and is illegally allowing mass parole across America to migrants who entered our country illegally. The governor said that the United States Constitution clearly says that states have a right to self-defense and that since the Biden administration has, quote, abdicated its constitutional compact duties to the states, Texas has every legal justification to protect the sovereignty of our states and our nation, end quote. Signatories on the statement include Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida, Governor Brian Kemp, Georgia, Governor Ken Stitt, Oklahoma, Governor Greg Gianforte, Montana, Governor Joe Lombardo, Nevada, Governor Kim Reynolds, Iowa, Governor Chris Sununu, New Hampshire, Governor Kay Ivey, Alabama, Governor Mike Dunleavy, Alaska, Governor Sarah Sanders, Arkansas, Governor Brad Little, Idaho, Governor Eric Holcomb, Indiana, Governor Jeff Landry, Louisiana, Governor Tate Reeves, Mississippi, Governor Mike Pearson, Missouri, Governor Jim Pellin, Nebraska, Governor Doug Burgum, North Dakota, Governor Mike DeWine, Ohio, Governor Henry McMaster, South Carolina, Governor Christy Nome, South Dakota, Governor Bill Lee, Tennessee, Governor Spencer Cox, Utah, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia, Governor Jim Justice, West Virginia, and Governor Mark Gordon, Wyoming. The only Republican governor in the country not to co-sign the statement was Vermont's Phil Scott. And shame on that guy. Seriously, shame on that guy. 25 Republican governors agree, not because this is a Republican position, but because what it means to be a republic is that you are a nation ruled by laws, not a nation ruled by men, first and foremost, where the president says, I am the law. This idea of being a nation ruled by laws is critically important. And far more is at stake than just whether we have border enforcement. What's at stake is whether we have a country, whether we are a country. That's what's being decided. And if you say, oh, it's just Republicans versus Democrats again, yeah, pick a side. Not supporting Republicans or supporting Democrats, but supporting what's right or supporting what's wrong or saying, who can know? Studied ambiguity is what's gotten us into this mess in the first place. You want the conflict to come to a close? Get on the side of what's right. Tip the balance in favor of what is right and what is true and what is self-evidently and universally and objectively good. A nation protecting its people is correct, but it's not a nation in the abstract if the government of the nation does not fulfill its responsibilities as instituted by God for it to namely to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. It's not the job of the government to just tell you, sit down, be quiet, 
whatever happens to you, happens to you. It's the job of the governing authority, according to Romans 13, to reward those who do what is good, to protect those who are exercising their God-given rights. When the government becomes oppressive instead of just, we see consistently God himself stepping in to liberate a people from their oppressors when their oppressors are those who wield authority over them in, yes, even a supreme executive fashion. Because guess what? It's not as clear-cut as just whoever is the president, you do what they say. It's significant that our states have governors, and those governors are not just there to do whatever the president says. If the president is promoting lawlessness, and this president is and has been from day one, and even before he took office, even when he was vice president, he was promoting lawlessness. When he was senator, he was promoting lawlessness by emphasizing and preferring penumbra and what was unenumerated over what is clearly articulated in the Constitution. That was the beginning of the unraveling of us being a coherent people with a coherent government. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You start emphasizing that you have the right to this that's not in there, and this that's not in there, and this that's not in there. And pretty soon, you have a right to everything, and therefore you have a right to nothing. You start emphasizing what's not in there. At a certain point, it's to the exclusion of what is in there. But then that's lawlessness. This has been a promotion of lawlessness for decades. That is Joe Biden's legacy. And maybe, just maybe, over border security, it's coming to a head. Last up, the last link I will draw your attention to here on this question for this episode comes from Not the Bee. Cardinal Pritchard posted this one yesterday. Governors of Florida, Virginia, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Montana, Georgia declare support for Texas and fight to secure the border. Here we have embedded tweets from several, their own individual personal statements. Ron DeSantis tweeted out, if the Constitution really made states powerless to defend themselves against an invasion, it wouldn't have been ratified in the first place. And Texas would have never joined the Union when it did. Texas is upholding the law while Biden is flouting it. Glenn Youngkin writes that Virginia stands with Texas. Greg Abbott is doing the job Joe Biden and his border czar refuse to do to secure our border. The Biden administration has turned every state into a border state. We must stop the flow of fentanyl, save lives, and secure our southern border. Governor Kevin Stitt says Oklahoma stands with Texas. Christy Nome says Greg Abbott is exactly right to invoke Texas constitutional authority to defend itself. The Biden administration has created a national security crisis and put Americans in danger. Their failure is an unconstitutional dereliction of duty. Greg Gianforte, governor of my home state, Montana, says Governor Greg Abbott is doing what POTUS won't. By refusing to act, President Biden is inviting cartels, illegal drugs, and human trafficking into the United States. We must secure the southern border. If you follow the link in the description for this podcast episode, the last link, you'll see if you scroll down a map of the United States with highlights in red, the states which so far as of 528 a.m. yesterday had come out in support of Greg Abbott and the state of Texas. 
as already indicated, the number grew over the course of yesterday, between yesterday, 5.28 a.m., and today, the number has gone up to 25, with Vermont's governor still not getting with the program. John Rich tweets out Article 4, Section 4, quote, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion, end quote. Matt Walsh, meanwhile, tweeted out a picture, an old-timey lithograph, which I recognize as being Fort Sumter, which, as you'll recall, was where the Civil War started. Is this today what's shaping up on the border with Mexico possibly going to be a civil war? Will it escalate to that point? Will this be the firing on Fort Sumter with federal agents by force removing Texas National Guard? Will Joe Biden try to nationalize, federalize the Texas National Guard? If so, what will be the outcome of that? It's hard to say. I don't know personally. But this being as important as it is, I am not going to abide by my typical rule of every third episode being subscriber only. For this episode, we're going to go ahead and make it available to everybody right from the jump, right from the start, because it can't wait until February 1st. If you're not a subscriber, I would encourage you do subscribe for 99 cents a month and then even subscriber episodes every third in the month that they're published, you'll be able to listen to right away, immediately. You won't have to wait. Otherwise, I'll resume my every third being subscriber only in the month that it's published. But this is a big deal. This is a really, really important moment in our country's history where we decide in moments like this what sort of a country we're going to be, whether we're going to be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You can't have liberty and justice for all when you scratch out the justice part, when you say that there is no such thing as justice, or justice is just whatever the Supreme Executive says is justice. The law is king. The king or the president is not the law. When kings forget that, when presidents forget that, they promote lawlessness. History, inside and outside of the biblical narrative, shows us that again and again, when supreme executives become lawless, it's just a matter of time before they are removed and replaced. And that is not at all at odds with what Romans 13 tells us. In fact, it's because Romans 13 says that God institutes authorities. No authority exists except as instituted by God that we have to take seriously when an authority, a person in a position of authority, promotes lawlessness. We have to take that seriously. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. We will follow this story as it develops, and we'll keep on talking about it in future episodes. I trust this is not the end. It's probably just the beginning. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.